Our first scripture reading this morning is from the second chapter of the first letter of Peter, found on page 219 in the New Testament of your pew Bibles. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into the salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you, then, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. The Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God always, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go there on purpose to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. And my way there is known to you. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Join with me in prayer, please. In the stillness of these moments together, let us hear your voice. Let us hear your call. Let us feel that intimate presence of your love. 
so that we might be transformed to the glory of the Father. Through you, our Savior and Lord. Amen. There are very, very few places where I get to feel as pastoral as I do at funerals. I like funerals. It creeps Danny out. I'll be leaving to do a funeral service and she'll say, have a good funeral? And my response is, oh, I sure will. Now, I must say, I do feel pastoral at baptisms and I feel pastoral at communion services behind the table. But I got to tell you, even though it's a little creepy, if you can't do a funeral, I'm not sure your religion is much good. If you can't deal with the reality of our commonality of death, I'm not so sure that I want to hear what you have to say about life. I start with that reference point because two of our scriptures from today are, shall we say, part of the uh, graveside greatest hits. We have John 14, where 1 to 6 is oftenly quoted, and then, of course, after our communion service, we'll be speaking the 23rd Psalm. In my father's house, in John, it says, there are many mansions. And from the psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Combined with that stinger of a conclusion for the 23rd Psalm, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are unfortunately a couple of twists that translations have given us that have uh, perhaps robbed them of their meaningful expression. In John 14, a less reckless translation of many mansions in the Greek is actually in our text today in the Bible, if you look it up in your pew Bible, uh, is rendered as dwelling places. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And some modern translators have said, well, in my father's house, that's a single building. And so dwelling places must have that other translation, which is rooms. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Well, that's really disappointing. So I get a pass from here into an eternal rooming house. Is it a private room? Does it have its own bath? Do I have to eat downstairs with everybody else? So a lot of times we just kind of leave the good old King James and the Greek word moina is translated as mansions. Now that's worth striving for, right? In my father's house are many, wait for it, mansions. We just kind of leave that whole dwelling place alone and we can assume if it's prepared for us by a God who loves us and who knows us better than ourselves, it's certainly going to be a lot better than a twin bed on the third floor. So for the sake of funeral comfort, many mansions. Also, the 23rd Psalm, you get to that, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A more literal Hebrew translation is, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for all of my days. Well, that's kind of a bummer at the graveside, right? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord until I die. Uh, I think we're going to leave again the old King James in place, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is about continuity. Now the notion of Hebrew days is that the days continue beyond our death into the days before the Lord, and so that sense of eternity is implicit within the theology of the text. 
But the text literally says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for the remainder of my days. But that's just not really satisfying at a gravesite, is it? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, say it with me, forever. There we go. For those of you who grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, you know from the Heidelberg Catechism the focus of my sermon today and why I want to take and help you move these scripture lessons from funerals and gravesides into a very living today. Okay? The Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is this, what is your comfort in life and in death? What is your comfort in life and in death? Those of you who grew up in a Christian Reformed church and had Dutch surnamed parents, you can probably speak it with me. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not one hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Think about it, confirmands. There was a day when that was the first question of your confirmation process, along with the answer, and sometimes it was expected to be memorized. I think we have a much more realistic set of expectations these days. But what echoes through that catechetical inquisition is the comfort that we have, not only in death, but today, as near as I can tell, more applicable to you, in life. That it is our comfort in the everyday. And that Heidelberg Catechism question and answer rings true with another graveside hit, and that is Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities or powers or things present things to come or height or depth or any other thing in God's whole creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very first, I am persuaded that neither death nor life can separate us. We spend a lot of energy talking about the grand separation that is death but I think we need to focus significantly more on the tempting separation that is life. How is it that life separates us from the love of God? That the stuff of what we do on any given day has the risk of separating our conviction that God loves us. So set aside the morning clothes and let's walk out of the memorial garden for a moment. Put the tissues back into your pocket and consider how it is that life also threatens to tug us away from the love of God because our comfort is in life, not just death. I think one of the reasons that I like funerals so much is because there is never a rebuttal from the guest of honor. 
not so true with weddings. There is no individual who has laid awake late at night dreaming about how beautiful her funeral will be someday. Brides, on the other hand, okay, with the exception of Emily Dickinson. I think Emily Dickinson laid awake at night thinking about how beautiful her funeral would be, but she's an exception. It is in our activities of everyday life that we end up having this churning, frustrating, troubled heart. And so it is in life that we also need to apply those same beautiful principles that we so gracefully recite at a graveside in death. Because when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, he was not speaking about a funeral. He was speaking to the living, not just for their sorrows at the cross and tomb yet to come. He was talking to them about the way in which they lived their lives in the decades yet to come. For the peace that they would often forfeit, for the needless pain they would bear because they decided to have troubled hearts. Now when Jesus spoke of troubled hearts, please know he was not talking about a normal human emotional response to things that are flat out upsetting. Being perplexed is not a troubled heart. Being upset is not a troubled heart. Being sad is not a troubled heart. Please remember that just three chapters earlier, we read that Jesus wept. Did Jesus have a troubled heart? We don't think so. So clearly tears are not the kind of trouble that Jesus is trying to calm here with his disciples in John 14. Disappointment or sadness or grief They're not demonstrations of a loss of faith. They are reasonable responses to the fact that we don't know everything that's going on. And that ambiguity is not somehow sinful or a failure of faith. Lord, I'm a little confused and I need some help. It's a perfectly normal and faithful prayer. It's a natural consequence of our being human. There is much in this world that is worthy of our tears that justifies perplexity and genuine concern it's what drives us I think to understand and drives us to the presence of each other so Jesus is not saying don't be concerned about the future or don't be confused or don't have grief he's saying don't have a troubled heart It means that kind of stirred up and necessary anxiety based on hypothetical fears. It matches what he said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. A troubled heart is one that is constantly working at the anticipations of things that may not even happen. It's a rushing into a future, and in that future, because we do not move through time with our God at our side, we jump into a future in the absence of God, and so no wonder our hearts are troubled. God is not in your hypothetical fear. God is not present in your yet unfulfilled anxieties. 
Don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus said. When you get there, there's enough going on. It'll already have its own worries. But don't worry about it before you get to what is actually happening. Then when you're in what is actually happening, guess who happens to be present with you and your troubled hearts can disappear. It brings us to that exuberant epistle reading that Chris shared just a few moments ago. Peter wrote these words, he said, we are supposed to, and this is my own digestion of the passage, we're supposed to long for spiritual milk by trusting in a stone that is living, not just any living stone, but a living cornerstone, because we're building this house, and we're building it as kings who are priests, and others stub their toes on this rock, but we're supposed to be a nation made up of kingly priests and chosen people who show forth light. Oh my goodness, Peter, do you have an editor to help you with your mixed metaphors? It's a bucket of comparisons. He's all over the place. Milk, stones, light, kings, priests, stubbing toes, for crying out loud. But what Peter is trying to convey in all of this mix that he dumps out in front of us is this bucket of metaphors hoping that something will stick to your heart so that you can let go of troubles for today. You need to feel like you're a nursing child being nurtured by the presence of God. You've got the milk thing going there. Peter's giving us that. You need to feel like you've got a place where you can stand. You bet there's a stone on which you can build your life. You need to feel like you have an interactive place where you can stand, where there's an exchange. It turns out to be a living stone. And on and on he goes. If you've got an anxiety that needs to be addressed, Peter says, here's a metaphor that is your God working with you in this moment to un trouble your heart there is a promise of many mansions okay at least a moderately well-furnished room it is not for us to obsess about the ambiguities of our future it's meant to tell us that our future is going to be okay because there will be our God with us in that future so in the meantime forget about it Go back to today. Go back to the green pastures, the still waters, the paths of righteousness. And you know what? Even if your today includes a valley of a shadow of death, you need to know that there is a shepherd who is leading you through that valley of the shadow of death, and that shepherd's purpose is to bring you to a new place where you can lie down and have still waters. It's a passageway, not to eternity, it's a passageway through which we need to go to get to the next place where our shepherd is leading us. It is a righteous path. And that is where we happen to be. Why? Because our shepherd knows what he's doing. Don't be unnecessarily agitated. You might be in green pastures today. You could be sipping from still waters. You might be in a valley of a shadow of death tomorrow. But you know what? All of this is leading on a righteous path. The anxiety, the fear of what may happen, the concern that there's something in the next shadow, in the next turn, is none of your concern. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Trust in God, trust in me. i got a place for you. There is this shepherd. He's got a rod that's going to smack out of the way. Any predator that might jump out. And there's a staff that's going to scoop you up if you fall. Stop fearing evil. The shepherd knows what he's doing. It's a righteous path. Now, I've been accused of doing a poor job at ending my sermons. Some of you have noticed that I kind of get to the last sentence and I'm just done. And all God's people said, Amen. It's like, wait a minute. I, I, was, I was thinking there was more. But I see you look at your watches at 2 minutes to 11. There could be more. But sometimes I abruptly end the sermon, or it feels abrupt, because I think that the real value of the sermon is not what comes out of my lips here in the middle of the service, but what comes out of our lives as we walk into the world around us. That the conclusion of the word, and I don't mean my words on a sermon page, the conclusion of the words is what happens in our hearts and changes our steps. That we become living sermons, more articulate than anything the pastor could possibly say. That people with untroubled hearts go out into the world. People with a shepherd who leads them in paths of righteousness go out into the pastures and streams and hills and valleys of the world around them. That the conclusion of any truly spirit-filled sermon, whether it's through a pastor's mouth or a faith forest teacher's words or a fellow choir member's laughter and encouragement or the prayers of a lay assistant, wherever it happens to be, the true power of the sermon is the life that is lived. So what matters is your letting go of the anxieties of your heart. Our shared capacity to live in this moment. Chris spoke about loneliness. And you need to know that he and I did, did not cooperate before I got to this conclusion of this sermon. What happened when we were separate from one another, no matter how much contact we had, Neurologically, what happened is, is that our brains ceased to share eye contact. Try and make direct eye contact during a Zoom. Give it your best shot. Can't be done. Camera screen, camera screen, camera screen, camera screen. Suddenly, you know, somebody in the others, are you having a seizure? Is everything okay? Something in us needs the assurance of that face-to-face eye-to-eye connection. Doesn't happen on the phone. Doesn't happen through a note. All of these are wonderful ways to stay in touch. But please note that when Jesus was telling his disciples not to be troubled, he was making direct eye contact with them. He even calls out Thomas and then calls out Philip. Reminders that this exchange to not have troubled hearts is not some distant instruction through some sort of virtual connection in a Zoom meeting of the faithful. It is our Savior looking at us, to us, 
making direct contact, saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And the God of all peace descends upon us. And at the end of that passage, the most astounding thing is promised by Jesus when that connection of untroubled hearts confronts the reality of God's shepherdly care. Jesus says this, If in my name you ask, I will do for you anything. Anything. And that asking and that doing starts now. Better ending? Let's stand and speak the words of the Apostles' Creed in the affirming of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit.